When I was a seminary student, one of the things that frustrated me the most was the requirement that we had to memorize the answers to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's because after years of work and life experience, as well as having been a Christian for quite a while, I honestly just couldn't see the purpose of it. Especially since the old English wording seemed so archaic and so out of touch with the world. And it didn't change much when the faculty said we could use the modern English version because in some senses it was even harder to read and memorize than the original. But now, after 20 years in ministry, I honestly do see the value in it because it really does work alongside scripture to help people understand the details of their faith. And that's exactly what Moses is doing here in Deuteronomy 12. It's the introduction to or an overview of what God wants Moses to teach his people about his law. But even more importantly, it's a primer for how God wants to relate to us and how he expects us to worship him. Which takes us back to the first question of the Shorter Catechism, because it helps us understand what's happening in this chapter and what God was having Moses tell his people. On an off chance that someone might, who knows what that question is and what the correct answer is. Feel free to go ahead and do it. The question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's important that we understand the answer to that question. Because that's the result Moses is hoping for as he teaches the Israelites about God's law. Now, despite its legal underpinnings, the law was meant to help us grow closer to God so that we might truly enjoy our relationship with him. That's why St. Paul referred to the law as a schoolmaster or as a tutor in Galatians 3, verses 24 through 26. As we look at chapter 12 and the result Moses was hoping for, We'll also see how this chapter is tied to the Ten Commandments and how those frame and impact our relationship with God and what that relationship should look like. So with those commandments and the shorter catechism in mind, there are four important aspects of this chapter that we need to comprehend in order for us to have the kind of relationship with God that we're supposed to have. The first is what I'll entitle, You Shall Not Make for Yourselves. And that's covered in verses 1 through 4. The second is observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. And that's what Moses is speaking to in verses 5 through 10. After that, Moses tells the Israelites, you shall not bow down to them in verses 15 through 28. And then finally, Moses talks about a jealous God punishing his people in verses 29 through 32. So let's look at each of those and see what God is showing us. One of the things you learn about Moses when you read the Old Testament is that he is not the most subtle or tactful person when communicating what God wants him to tell his people. And that's more than evident in these first four verses. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given to you to possess as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills and under the spreading tree, 
where the nations who are dispossessing worship their gods, break down their altars, <coughs> smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods, and wipe out their names from the, those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Despite that terse legal tone, the words in these four verses are actually very personal. Because Moses is reminding the Israelites of God's sovereignty as well as that God expects them to be radically different than the Canaanites. At the same time, he's reminding them that this is his land and not theirs. And that there are things he expects them to do as soon as they take possession of it. Now, admittedly, what God is asking them to do sounds harsh and violent. But we also need to remember that the Canaanites were a harsh and violent people whose pagan religious rites were totally opposed to the redemptive message God was communicating to his people, even in the Old Testament. What's hidden in the harshness is that God expects worship to be the central part of the Israelites' relationship with him. And that he doesn't want the symbols and practices of Canaanite religion to cast even the faintest shadow on the lives and faith of his people. Simply put, he's ensuring there's no opportunity for the Israelites to compromise their faith as they try to live out the words of the second commandment where he tells them, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Essentially, Moses is telling the Israelites that they're not going to be allowed to straddle the religious fence and that with God, with Yahweh, it's an all-or-nothing proposition. Which is why God ordered them to eradicate every last hint of how the Canaanites lived and practiced their faith. It's the same radical change Jesus had in mind when he told believers, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. But God also doesn't want the Israelites to lose sight of what he's done for them in the past and what he's about to do for them in the future. Just as importantly, and as he'll do again in other parts of this passage, he's laying out the limits and boundaries of his relationship with the Israelites and what he sees as unacceptable practices in terms of their faith. And all of this is no less important to our relationship with because the words of this passage are anathema to the modern world. Because they're not warm and welcoming. They're not inclusive. They're radically exclusive. But that's okay. Because just like God was doing through Moses, he's setting himself apart from the unbelieving world around us by highlighting his sovereign authority, which is something the world won't accede to because it impinges on their sense of autonomy and it lessens their ability to impact what people think and believe. And it's vital that as God's people that we see that. 
so that we don't fall victim to the self-oriented idolatry that's prevalent around us and sadly sometimes prevalent in God's church as well. That's why we need to be radically different and have a Christ-dependent, God-centered, and redemptive faith that points people back to Christ and away from the works-oriented self-righteousness of the world, which is the same thing Moses is pointing out to the Israelites in the next set of verses. <coughs> but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, which you have vowed to give in your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone doing as they see fit. Since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God has given you, but you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling place for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I command you. As we all know, ritual and rhythm are part and parcel to our lives. And that's more than evident every Tuesday evening when everyone in Kalboki is putting their blue or green bin out so the rubbish you recycle can be collected on Wednesday morning. And that ordinariness of life is exactly what God is having Moses address here. Simply put, Moses is revealing God's desire to continue living among his people even after they're permanently settled in the land he's giving them. But just as he did in the previous verses, Moses is also highlighting the holiness that's an inherent part of them. <clears throat> Essentially, God is using ritual to make the Israelites, as well as each of us, aware of his presence, and aware of how ritual points to the resident forgiveness and redemption that's part of God's kingdom. And particularly in the case of Christianity, what Christ has done on the cross. And that's more significant than we realize. Because as I said, even with the emphasis God puts on place, he's doing it as a way of helping us recognize how near to us he truly wants to be, and then he's challenging us to live in the reality of that. A reality where faith and life overlap, and that enables us to find a place-based sanctuary like peace and rest that restores the sense of wholeness our busy world strips away from us. But the only way for us to do that and experience that is to step away from life and actively seek and worship God as individuals, as Moses is alluding to here, as a community. 
Because it's in that duality that we fully and finally understand what it means to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's critical that we grasp that as both individuals and as a congregation. Because it's that sense of sanctuary and peace that enables us to reject what the world is offering and what through Moses God is telling us to stand against. Nevertheless, you may slaughter your animals in any of your towns and eat as much of the meat as you want, as if it were gazelle or deer, according to the blessing the Lord your God gives you. Both ceremonially unclean and clean may eat it, but you must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. You must not eat in your own towns the tithe of your grain, the new wine, and olive oil, or the firstborn of your herds and flocks, or whatever you have vowed to give, or your free will offerings or special gifts. Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God will choose. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns. And you are to rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. Be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God has enlarged your territories, he promised you, and you crave meat and say, I would like some meat, then you may eat as much as you want. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, you may slaughter animals from the herds and flocks the Lord your God has given you. As I have commanded you in your own towns, you may eat as much of them as you want. Eat them as you would gazelle or deer. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat. But be sure you do not eat the blood, because the blood is the life, and you must not eat the life with the meat. You must not eat the blood, pour it out on the ground like water, do not eat it, so that it may go well with you and your children after you, after you, because you will be doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But take your consecrated things, and whatever you have vowed to give, and go to the place the Lord will choose. Present your burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord your God, both the meat and blood. The blood of your sacrifices must be poured beside the altar of the Lord your God, but you may eat the meat. Be careful to obey all these regulations I am giving you, so that it may always go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. Animal sacrifice and slaughter were a regular part of nearly every religion in the ancient Near East. And that was particularly true of Canaanite culture. Every facet of their agricultural process and major parts of daily life were tied to various sacrifices, regardless if it was asking the gods for a son or for a good harvest as farmers were plowing and seeding their fields. It even impacted religious life, but in a way that God found horrendous and offensive because it involved the sacrifice of live children. But it's here. Here through the words of Moses that God changes the equation and says no to Canaanite practices, while at the same time modifying commands given to the Israelites in Leviticus chapters 3, 7, 17, and 19. So not only is God raising the bar in terms of the culture of sacrifice and people's respect for life, he's drawing a line in the sand and further separating Jewish life from Canaanite culture and religion. 
It's the same thing he was trying to get across in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 about idols when he had Moses tell them, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And that separation was critical. Because instead of the submission and bargaining that characterized Canaanite sacrifices, God wanted the Israelites to see that eating meat was a separate part of their faith. It wasn't actually part of it. It was an everyday thing. Well, at the same time, he was highlighting that sacrifice and feasting were both complementary as well as being integral to their faith. But God also wanted them to see the cost incurred with each sacrifice. And to understand the value of life, even animal life, in light of his providential care and redemption. Just as he had in other parts of this passage, God is using Moses to tie himself to his people and his people to him. But he's also tying that relationship to corporate worship. And the reality that he sees it as a necessary part of life by making worship a symbol of our obedience and a picture of our faith. Just as St. Paul reminded the early church in Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25, where he writes, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up eating together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's the same challenge God's laying before believers today. As we push aside something as important as our relationship with Him in order to maximize our prospects for success at work or maybe to provide a variety of recreational opportunities for our children or grandchildren. Just as God was commanding the Israelites and as Paul was admonishing the ancient church, we need to look at our own lives and our own faith to see if the redemption we have in Christ drives us toward God in worship or panders to a hidden desire for an autonomous faith in religion, which is something God pointedly condemns in the final set of verses from today's passage. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. The wording in this last set of verses is exceptionally strong. And it's written in a way that leaves absolutely no room for the Israelites to adopt and exercise the kind of idolatry practiced by the Canaanites. And there are three probable reasons for that. First, as I've already mentioned several times today, God is safeguarding his character and setting himself above and apart from the Canaanite gods. Second, he doesn't want there to be any confusion about how inherently evil Canaanite religious practices were. And then last, and as I mentioned early on, God wants to push aside the Israelites' temptation to practice them. Instead, he wants there to be a clean and decisive break with the sins associated with it. 
Just as he did in the first four verses, God's emphasizing to the Israelites that he wants them to eradicate every vestige of Canaanite culture. And that's because God knows how easily they, as well as any of us, can fall victim to life as the world around us practices it. That's why he wants them to see those practices as a lingering, ever-eminent threat to their relationship with them, him, and to how he wants them to practice their faith. And as we know from the pages of Scripture, that wasn't easy for the Israelites to accept, and it's not something humanity will ever accept. Because ever since Adam and Eve fell, we've had a morbid fascination with sin that interferes with our relationship with God. Which is why God had Moses issue this warning, and why we still need to pay attention to it. Because like the Israelites, we're called to be witnesses whose lives exemplify the redemption that's an inherent part of kingdom life and that the world desperately needs a picture of. And most people who look at the Old Testament have a conception of God, of a God who's dour, merciless, and bloodthirsty, who's bent on punishing the world. Yet, even with the aspects of this passage that might support that view, the words of Deuteronomy 12 portray a God who's, a pe who's people-oriented and sensitive to their temptations. But it also gives us a picture of a God who wants to see us to see the sacred nature of life. And that the slaughter of any animal for food is in itself an example of a substitutionary sacrifice where the death of one means life for another. Much of the same way Christ's death on the cross opened the way to eternal life for everyone who believes. And as I said at the beginning of this sermon, it's in knowing and experiencing the reality of that that we grasp the importance of what the Westminster divines were trying to communicate when they wrote the Shorter Catechism. Because just like this passage, it was meant to educate people about their faith while drawing them into a closer, more personal, and definitively deeper relationship with God. That's why when you go home today, I want you to find a printed or online copy of the Shorter Catechism and take a fairly close look at it, as well as looking at Deuteronomy chapter 12 again. As you're doing that, let the questions and answers to the catechisms, as well as the words of Deuteronomy 12, sink into your hearts and minds as a way of reminding you of just how much God loves you and the extent of what he'll do to establish and maintain that relationship. Then after you've set it all aside, ask yourself, what is the chief end of man? And then wait for the answer. Almighty God, although we have your word and see the cross before us like the Israelites, we often miss the wondering power of the redemptive message that fills the pages of Scripture, as well as what the Holy Spirit may be trying to whisper to us. Which is why we ask that you would be with us and rid us of the things that tempt us and turn us away from you. Allow us to experience the mercy and grace your word speaks to, and it was secured for us on the cross. Grant that we would be your people and witnesses to the world, and that you would be, deeply, would be the deeply personal and loving God this rough and tumble passage points to. We ask all this in the mighty and precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.